theological education should be affordable. Seminary students should not have to take out tens of thousands of dollars in student loans to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, our students pay a base of $75 per credit hour and a $375 per semester fee. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick, and we have the privilege of having Sam Renahan on with us. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, Austin. It's a pleasure to be with you. And Sam, could you just take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners, who you are, what you do? Sure. I'm Sam Renahan. I am pastor of Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in La Mirada, California. That's at the LAOC border. And I serve full-time in the gospel ministry, but also take some time to write books on Baptist history, as well as covenant theology and the doctrine of God, and recently the doctrine of the descent. Amen. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about one of your newer releases, not the newest release, but the book Deity and Decree. So to just start us off, can you tell us about the background of the book? How did you come to write it? What is it about? And for whom is it written? Yeah, Deity and Decree began as lectures for uh, a Spanish seminary class in Colombia in 2019. And so I put all that together to go teach down there, and I published that initially as a Spanish uh, primer on the doctrine of God for that class. And then this past year, I translated it from Spanish into English and published it as Deity and Decree. One of the advantages, though, is that the book relies very, very heavily on uh, quoting 17th century and and 16th century sources. So translating back into English, part of it was just using the original English quotations from certain authors that I was relying on. So it was an interesting process. So it, it began as seminary lectures that were published in Spanish and then reverted or translated back into English. And it was written initially for seminary students um, pa- on the on the pastor level, but trying to be as accessible and simple as possible um, to, to teach the doctrine, not just to re- repeat it. And so um, for our listeners, can you just tell us um, what is theology proper and what is its main subject matter? Yes, theology proper is the study of God specifically. Uh, I mean, theology, the word itself would mean speeches or discourses concerning God, but we use the word theology for all things relating to, to doctrine. And so to be specific about the doctrine of God, we would say not just theology, but theology proper, theology itself, uh, the study of God himself, theology itself. So the, the doctrine of God or theology proper deals with God and the doctrine of the, of the Trinity because God is one and God is three. And that's what deity and decree uh, is primarily about, but not exclusively about. 
your book is divided into three main parts, as you know, God's unity, God's trinity, and God's decree. Um, we've had an episode on on the doctrine of the trinity before, so we'll, we'll discuss the two other parts at more length. But to start, how do we come to know God, and what are the best ways to describe him? In my book, I... I follow older authors who would argue that we can come to know God uh, in primarily two ways, uh, through reason and through revelation. Um, knowing God through reason has its limitations, but there is true knowledge of God that we can know through reason. And, and this knowing God through reason means specific things. It means that we can look at the existence of all things and say, all these things must be caused there must be a cause that is not itself caused uh, that caused all things caused. <laughs> and so we can reason from the existence of all things to an original cause. And we say that is God. But, but that's a very limited knowledge. You're, you're, you're merely acknowledging the existence of a God who has caused all things. Another way in which reason uh, knows God truly, but in a, a limited sense, is through negation. So we look at creation, we look at creatures, and we look at creaturely existence, and we think about imperfections uh, in creation. And so we say, well, God cannot possess or, or participate in imperfections. And so if we start to deny imperfections that we see in creaturely existence, we then are removing things from our idea of God, removing imperfections, and therefore knowing him better. And so reason can say, well, it would be an imperfection to change or to be capable of change. It would be an imperfection to be incapable of fulfilling your will or, or to, to lack potency in such things. And so uh, reason can infer, can deduce, can arrive at certain attributes of God by denying creaturely imperfections to be in God. And similar to that, we can look at virtues in, in man. We can look at virtues in creatures and say, well, we see wisdom and we see love and we see uh, other goodness, kindness in, in man. Where do these virtues come from? There, there must be an original. There must be one who is in himself goodness, who is in himself love, who is all wise, etc. And so here we look at the good things in creation and we say they must have an original supreme who is God. And so that's called knowing God by eminence. So we, we would know him by reason through causation. We look at causes and say there's an original cause that is God. We look at imperfections and we negate them to God. That's knowing him by negation. And we look at virtues in man and we know God better because we say those virtues are originally in God and therefore eminently, supremely, perfectly, essentially, eternally, etc. But e even all of that true knowledge of God uh, known by reason is still incomplete. Uh, it is still not the fullness of the knowledge of God to which we can attain, and that is only possible through revelation. And so we know God through revelation, namely through the scriptures. Of course, some would say, well, creation is general revelation, and we're not denying that in, in the way that we're saying this. But when I say revelation, I mean the word of God. And in the word of God, God is described to us in so many ways and much more personally to us. And so one of the best ways in which we know God is through his names. 
when we look at the names of God in Scripture, we say God chose these names to reveal himself to man. Therefore, we should give great attention to why did God make these his names? Were they already his names and he didn't choose them? No, the, the scripture is something that he has created for us. It is revelation that he has generated for us. It is not something uh, that God was forced to say, well, this is my name. I have to say this. You know, uh, My name is my name, whether I like it or not. And, and I do like it. But God, he's choosing how to reveal himself to us. And he's choosing names to use uh, to to reveal himself to his children and to his people. And so God's names advance us to a much uh, more personal and complete, as complete as can be for creatures, knowledge of himself. And not just the names of God, but also the, the works of God in Scripture uh, and other things that, that describe God's, God's nature and God's being to us. So the Scriptures really complete sufficiently, complete our knowledge of God. And the best ways to describe him, therefore, are that he exists of himself. He's the cause that causes all things caused without being caused. Uh, and to say that this this amazing, all-powerful God, uh, who is our God, he is incomprehensible. He, he's greater than our minds can conceive of. As complete and sufficient and true as our knowledge may be, we have not yet attained at a mastery. We have not yet contained God in our minds, and so we call him incomprehensible. Not that we can know nothing, it's just that we can't know everything that there is to know of God, or we would be God. And we also describe him as ineffable, which means he, we, as we cannot contain him in our minds, that's incomprehensible, so we cannot contain him in our words or our speech, which means he's ineffable. Uh, and so even as we do our best to describe God and to develop a doctrine of God, we recognize there are there are limitations. Uh, we have not fully expressed God in our words or in our in our teaching. He he excels and exceeds and surpasses whatever the greatest thing we can possibly say about him. Uh, and that is not, uh, as we recognize our creaturely limitations in this, that's not a that's not a bad thing, because David in Psalm 139, he looks at his own creaturely limitations, but then he praises God because of it. You know, wherever I go, you are there, and and he's he's delighted by that fact. And there are so many things that David cannot understand, and and that moves him to worship. So th these are not disappointments to say that God is incomprehensible or ineffable. These are causes for praise, and we say. I'm actually, I'm very glad that my God is not comprehensible. I'm glad he's not something that I could get a PhD in and say, I, I've read all the sources. I know all the things. Uh, I've, you know, I've mastered God. If, if that were our God, mm, that would not really be God. And so when we know him through reason and revelation, and even then we express him as incomprehensible and ineffable, this is, again, as I said, not a disappointment. This is a recognition of, it, it is a humbling thing where we bow ourselves, we bow our hearts before the Lord, and we worship him in the majesty of his, his holiness. And that is where we should be in the doctrine of God. That's what it ought to lead us to, is to a recognition of our own creatureliness, and that's okay, that's who we are, and a recognition of God's uh, deity uh, and praising him and worshiping him uh, because of that. Thank you for that. Um, 
In the book, you cover many attributes, including negative attributes, relative attributes, and positive attributes. Uh, Due to time, we'll focus on one that seems to be neglected in our day, and that is the impassibility of God. So when we say God is impassable, what do we mean? I find it helpful when this question comes up, and it's come up a lot in recent years, and I think that's a good thing, to I find it helpful when talking about impassibility to encourage people to think in the categories of agents and patients. Uh, Impassibility, strictly speaking, means that God cannot be acted upon or that he has no passive potency. He is impassable. He he cannot undergo, he cannot suffer uh, anything or be acted upon. And so agents act upon patience. Patience suffer. And the passable root and impassibility is the same root that we have patient, uh, one who suffers. God is, he is impatible, was an older spelling of the word. He is incapable of of undergoing, incapable of being acted upon. Uh, In fact, the nature of his being makes it impossible for anything to act on God and change him in any way. So God's impassibility means that Nothing outside of God or even inside of God could could change him. He is already so fully perfect, uh, so what we would say perfectly actual or pure act. He is who he is. That is his divine name. I am that I am, that there is no, no thing and no way in which God could be acted upon by anything or anyone to change him. His being and his being itself, as well as the distance between God and creatures makes that impossible. And that's what we what we mean when we say that God is impassable. Nothing can act on him. He cannot undergo or suffer anything. And piggybacking off of that, um, of course, we want to derive all doctrine from from scripture or or by necessary consequence from what scripture teaches. So where do we see this doctrine of impassibility? in scripture? Great question. When we look at the fullness of the scriptures, one of the things that you see again and again and again in, for example, narratives, is that God is is always accomplishing his will. Uh, even even in the times where Israel is unfaithful and they're sinning and they're they're being wicked, whether in the wilderness or in the conquest or in the days of the judges or in the times of the kingdom and the divided kingdom, the the narrator the author is constantly saying things like uh, this took place because the Lord had determined it or etc. It was the Lord who's working through all these things, and so in the scriptures we constantly see people doing what they want to do, people going their own way, and and you might think that this is going to change God's mind or this is going to affect God and change Him, but He's always accomplishing His purposes. And so the scriptures, we see God never figuring things out as he goes, but God always doing exactly what he purposed to do from before the creation of the world. And scripture, God himself says in scripture that he's not a man, that he should lie. He's not a man that he should change his mind. He's not a man that he should repent or meaning that he should turn away from what he has purposed to do. So we see impassibility there. I'm not like you, God says. I don't change my mind. I don't 
uh, I don't lie. I don't say this is my eternal purpose and then it, it doesn't come to pass. We also see this in the scriptures where we see God described as uh, his steadfast love endures forever. If God is passable, then his love would not be steadfast and would not endure forever because we could change it. We could interrupt his love. We could alter his love, but his steadfast love endures forever. Or it says that his mercies are new every morning. His mercy is so perfect, you can't diminish it. You can't turn it down. You can't turn it off. You can't uh, reduce it. His mercies are new every morning. And so when we see this perfect love and this perfect mercy and this God who is always accomplishing his plans, even with all of man's madness, we say this is a God who cannot be acted upon. This is God who is so perfect and so beyond us. There's no way that we or anything in, in this world that is lesser than he, there's no way that we could exert a force on he who is greater than us in a way that, that would change him. And so the scriptures uh, teach, not only does God say, I, the Lord, do not ch change in such passages of, of immutability, but also just looking at descriptions of God's love and his mercy and God's unstoppable purposes in history all of these things teach impassibility to us and, and remind us he's not a man. He's not like us. And then piggybacking off of that question, how does scripture help us to interpret itself when dealing with passages that some say contradict the notion of God's impassibility? Yeah, that, that's a it's a good question in the sense that it's a very natural question to ask. You know, well, doesn't it say that God repented or regretted? And we have to say, well, let's compare Scripture with Scripture. And I was just mentioning a moment ago that God himself says, I am not a man that I should change my mind. And so we have ways to account for situations like Nineveh, where God says, I'm going to destroy Nineveh, and then God does not destroy Nineveh. The Scriptures can call that repentance because repentance fundamentally is to go one way and then to turn around and go the other way. In man, repentance takes place because we have learned something new or our mind has been changed. We've been convinced I should not go that way. I should go back the other way. Whereas for God, he decrees I will threaten uh, judgment upon Nineveh, but he has already decreed that that is what will turn them from their sins, and so therefore he will not judge them. And so it's not that God has changed his mind. However, what we see in time and space is a reversal. It is a going one way and then going another way, but not because God changed his mind. And so the scriptures can truly call that a repentance, or God repented, God was going this way and then went the opposite way, but we say he's not a man. This didn't take place because something changed in God, or or God learned something, or, or God's mind was changed. This was decreed indeed from the beginning. Every piece of the puzzle, or not puzzle, but every piece of the, the developing story. And uh, for us, we witness that in time and space as successive events. But for God, he has decreed them all uh, eternally, uh, apart from all succession and time. That's one way in which we can do this. Another way is to encourage people who ask this question by saying, when you read scriptures that speak about God's uh, body, a, a body in relation to God, his, his arm or his eyes uh, or, and other physical features or, or wings and such things, you understand that although this says something true about God, God is not 
reduced to the level of this language. This language is not one-to-one -one with what God is, although it does speak truth about God. And so also when, when God is described in the language of human emotions, just as we understand that the that God being described in human physical features is a, a limited way of speaking, so also God described in human emotional terms is also a limited way of speaking, where we would say this communicates truth. This, these are not empty lying words, but we should not equate one-to-one -one the language that is used of God um, to to God himself. So, for example, a lot of older authors use the example of anger or wrath. Excuse me. And they say that in us, uh, anger or wrath is, is a passion. We are provoked to it. Um, and they say God's wrath or God's anger is not some burning in God, because if it were, God would be eternally and essentially sort of burning and angry, and that, that doesn't make sense. So how then can God be said to be angry or have wrath if God is not eternally sort of burning like we do with anger? Well, when God causes the wicked to experience divine judgment, then they are feeling the effects of what anger normally works between men. Uh, and so we can speak of God's his justice poured out on a wicked object, which would be condemnation. His justice poured out on a wicked object, we can call that wrath. We can call that anger because sin is being punished. Sin is being condemned. But then we don't take the sort of the furor and the ire and the wrath of man and read that back into God just because we've used that language. We affirm God's justice is perfectly unstoppably punishing the wicked. And so the wicked ought to fear the wrath of God. But we don't then create a sort of doctrine of God's wrath where he is eternally burning in himself or something. And then that also helps us because we can say that same justice of God that looks at a wicked object and condemns it, that same justice looks at a, a righteous object and approves it. And so for the elect in Jesus Christ, for the forgiven, the redeemed, the justified, the same perfection that in one case is called wrath, which is really God's justice on a wicked object, that same perfection of justice for us is God's, is God's um, his approval, his delight, his love to his children. And that, that's not God having two different emotional reactions to the goats and the sheep. That's God's one perfection of justice approving a righteous object, righteous in Jesus Christ, and condemning a wicked object, namely uh, the non-elect, those who, who remain in their own sins. And so God is not changing his mind or changing his heart in some way. It's not that we are changing God. I have to, I have to change God. No, it is rather God's justice is un, unmovable and unchangeable, and we are changed from being sinners to being righteous uh, in, in Jesus Christ, and that's where the change takes place. So when, when people look at scripture passages, we want to point out to them that God himself tells us he's not man. So don't read that as one-to-one -one language. We want to point out to them uh, that there are ways to describe, based on the decree, how God begins to do one thing and then does something else as he uh, decreed it. We talk to them about how we change in relation to God in salvation. God does not change. He himself does not change. And, and so on and so forth, so that we, we affirm with them these passages are true, they're not empty, 
uh, but we need to understand them carefully and we need to give them the fullness of scripture. And as we don't reduce God to bodily language or physical features, so also we do not re reduce him to the language of human uh, emotions. And that, that takes time for people to sort of grasp and begin to think that way because it's hard for us to think outside of our experience. You know, we are passable, emotional human creatures. And so it, it is difficult to think in a way that uses passable language but is not passable. You know, we recognize that's hard. That There's a challenge there. But the more that we teach this, the more that we think about it, uh, the more we have a doctrine of God clearly in our minds, the, the easier it will become and the more quickly we will be able to read these passages and say, okay, this declares God's unchanging justice or his unchanging love or his everlasting mercy without the, human the humanity of the human language used to describe God. And we should be patient as, as ministers to teach that. And we should also encourage people don't be afraid to speak about God in the way that he has spoken about himself, because some people may listen to this and say, well, I don't want to pray to God then because I don't want to say the wrong thing that, you know, I don't want to like say heresy to God as I'm praying to him if I don't, but we cannot but speak as creatures. And the point is simply in our minds, not to reduce God to the language we're using. And so we could say things like, oh, Lord, have mercy upon us, or, oh, Lord, do not be angry forever. Uh, we can use the language of the psalmist while understanding that that's how we talk. But that doesn't mean that God is exactly like the way that we are speaking. So we're not chasing people away from the language of scripture. We're chasing people away from reducing God to the humanity of, of the language of scripture or, or the imperfect elements of humanity in the language of scripture. And so I tell people, don't be afraid to pray to God or to pray in the way that the scriptures themselves speak of him. Just understand he's greater than that. He's beyond that. And we shouldn't uh, reduce him. And, and one last bit in this, in this, question is another great example is when Solomon dedicates the temple, he says that, oh Lord, you fill heaven and earth. Uh, here's this house that has been built for you. If the heavens of heavens cannot contain you, how then can this house contain you? And so is Solomon therefore saying, well, God, I guess you won't be in this temple. No, he's saying, oh Lord, be here truly and bless us. Although we acknowledge you are, you transcend your presence here. And so also God's word speaks truly to us, but who he is transcends the language even that he uses to communicate himself to us. So the scriptures are like that temple. They contain God and, and describe God truly, and yet we should perceive or, or we should conceive of God as being greater even than that language. Amen. Amen. And before we talk about the Trinity briefly, I'm going to ask a question off the cuff. Um, there was a discussion I had with a young lady at a, well, I mean, she's my age. I'm young, my age of person at, at a conference. Um, and we, we did discuss briefly the doctrine of impassibility and, and of course is natural to us as you discussed it, it was difficult for her and it really got into well how how does this doctrine apply to us is what she was trying to get at um now we acknowledge that 
the doctrine of God, it moves us to worship and that God is an end in and of himself. He is the end. So the end is to praise and glorify and enjoy God. But what are some of the other, I don't know, subjective benefits of acknowledging this doctrine of divine impassibility for the believer? Yeah, that's a great question. The the one that I would run to immediately is again, that God's love is steadfast and endures forever, and his mercies are new every morning. Um, spouses and family members get mad at each other, and we do things that increase or diminish the other person's love. And sometimes you feel more or less positive towards other people, and they feel more or less positive towards you because you're not that great either. Uh, that's a general you, not not a specific you. We we ride the roller coaster of human emotions and relationships because we're sinful. And so the question is, we know that we do these things and we actually do them against God. We are, we are faithless to him. We, we whore after other gods to use the old old Testament language. And, and, and we who have received so much light and grace, we live in, in these last days in which the former ways of God revealing himself have ceased and, and Jesus Christ has come. And, and we have all of this full, fullness of knowledge and testimony and experience in God's goodness. He lavishes all these things upon us, and then we whore after other gods, whatever they may be. If God were like us, if he were passable, how could he not be enraged and incensed at our ingratitude and our treachery and our faithlessness? If he were passable, I don't see how he could not just cut us off and say, I'm, I'm so sick of you. I, I, I can't believe you, a people so blessed, would treat me in this way, fail to give me the worship that I deserve, fail to honor me with the honor of which I am worthy, failing to obey a law that is good for you, a law that is holy unto you, failing in every way to, to believe my promises and obey my commands. I have loved you, but my love is is better spent elsewhere. That's how God's love would be if he were like us because of the magnitude of our sins. Um, and, and that's not the way that he is. He sets his love on us in Jesus Christ, and he washes us, and his love will not turn away from doing us good. His love will, will not say, as he did to, to Old Testament Israel, I put you away. I give you a certificate of divorce. He will not say to us, you, you stiff-necked people, I will no longer bless you. I will vomit you out of the land. Uh, God says to us, I have, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I have set my love upon you in Jesus Christ, and he will never turn away from that. And so we can know every day, every morning, his mercies are new. He is love. He will not cease to be loving. Uh, and so therefore, that gives me a confidence, that gives me an assurance, that gives me a, a comfort and a trust that my heavenly father uh, is not like me, that my heavenly father, although he may permit dark providences and afflictions for my good, he still loves me. His love has never ceased and never will cease towards me. And so the, the many people focus on impassibility as a negation because it is a negation, but it leads to a wonderful affirmation as we clear the passions 
of man, we see the perfections of God, and we see how perfect his love is, how perfect his mercy is, how perfect his justice is, how perfect his goodness is towards us, his people. And that's really when impassibilities, it, that's where its payoff comes. It's not just re- removing and negating, but leading us towards the perfections of God, in which that is the foundation of our, of our hope. That the steadfast love endures, uh, that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, and that He will never break His covenant with us. There's really nothing more practical than that, and it's it's a wonderful comfort to the believer. Amen. In part two, you move and you you discuss the doctrine of the Trinity, and we all here confess that the one God subsists in three co-equal and co-eternal persons. In the final chapter of that part, you you discuss how the Trinity is the foundation for our communion with God, which actually comes from the 1689 as well as the the confessions on which it is based. So in light of that, what are the ways in which we have communion with God and how is the Trinity the foundation for it? We as believers have communion with God uh, in, in salvation because we are reconciled to the Father by the Son and through the Spirit. And God, who cho- the Father who chose us and the Son who saved us and the Spirit who indwells us, uh, the Spirit then enables us to pray through Jesus Christ to the Father. And so in, in prayer, in salvation and in prayer, uh, we have communion with God in worship. We worship the Father. We worship the Son. We worship the Spirit because they are one God. Uh, and we obey the Father's commands. We obey the law of Christ, we obey the Spirit who who speaks to the churches. Uh, our obedience uh, is unto God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our prayers are unto God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our salvation is from God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So really everything we do, our whole life uh, is communion with the triune God. Uh, and we have this comfortable dependence because we've been adopted by the Father, which is a, a grace that Jesus won for us on the cross, and we are indwelt by the spirit of adoption. And so this becomes a foundation of comfortable dependence. I'm indwelt by the spirit. I was purchased by the Son. I am adopted by the Father. If if God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is for me, who can be against me? I mean, that that is comfortable dependence. I rely upon this. I trust in this. I uh, I rest in and receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ because it is from the Father and through the Son and by the Spirit. All of these things, we could really just start to almost say any part of the Christian life and the gifts of salvation and say, this is how we have communion, union and communion with, with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, John Owen, of course, his his book on communion with God encourages us to think in this Trinitarian way in terms of communion and would, would be a good source of reading for those who, who would like to look into this more deeply. And transitioning us from part two to part three of your book of God's decree, what is the divine decree? The divine decree, I'm going to use John Norton's definition, which is in my book, is the divine decree is the act of God by which he determines absolutely the existence, 
and infallible future of all that is outside himself. <laughs> so that means that God determines all things whatsoever shall come to pass, to use the, the catechism question answer. Uh, he, he determines absolutely the existence and infallible future. These are the things which will come to pass. And this is God decreeing in himself all that which is outside of himself. There's nothing outside of him compelling him to decree this. He decrees it in himself. Our confession uses that language. But what he decrees is uh, gains its existence and it, it exists outside of God. Um, he establishes its existence and its development and its infallible future to the praise of his own glory. And in your discussion on the divine decree, you have an entire chapter on divine concurrence as well as you have some chapters that deal with some of the questions that arise with the divine decree. So to start us off, what is divine concurrence and what are second causes and how are they free? Yes, these are big questions. <laughs> concurrence, if you think about the word, it, it, it helps to think about the word, just get some of the concepts, you know, when we concur, it's like we agree, you know, two people are together, but the word concurrence more, more strictly is referring to things that, that run together, like two currents, like these things are concurrent. They run together side by side. And so divine concurrence mean, is the doctrine that <clears throat> in all things that happen, that God as the first cause is acting according to his agency and running beside that, concurrent with that, all other causes are also acting, or all other agents are also acting as secondary causes or second causes according to their agency. So in, in every event, in every action, we don't say, well, who did this, God or the creature? That would be to, to divide the two things. Concurrence says that God is at work in all things as the first cause, and man or creaturely agents, not just man, it can be animals, it can be uh, natural causes. All of these things are secondary causes or second causes that are developing in the way that God or playing out in the way that God designed them. They act according to their, uh, according to their nature. And so concurrence says God is at work in all things and the creation is working according to the way in which God created it. And we don't split that up and say, well, either God did that or, or I did that. No, rather, I act according to my agency. I, I act within the sphere of my power that God has granted to me as a creature, and God is acting at the same time to accomplish his purposes in all these things. And so secondary causes are really all creaturely causes. There's one primary cause or first cause, that's God, and there's just one. And then secondary causes are all agents, all causes in, in creation. Now, there are different kinds of second causes, different kinds of, of secondary causes. Some of them are necessary causes. So, for example, God has made the world in such a way that it has laws of physics, laws of science, and gravity for example, is a necessary cause because of the way in which God has made this world, that the mass of an object exerts a force on other objects, and the larger the mass, the greater the force, and so planets being so massive pull things towards themselves. They keep us on the earth by gravity. That Why, why does that happen? What is the, the force of this? Why is that 
attraction happening, well, God has made it a necessary cause. It will always happen so long as there's a sufficient mass to exert such a pull. I mean, I'm technically exerting a, a gravitational pull on both of you right now, but I'm so small and I'm so far away from you that it's really a zero force. But the planet is keeping us here. We're not currently floating away from our desks. That's a necessary cause. And God is the first cause who has created something like gravity, but then gravity is working according to the laws of gravity. There are also free causes, which means that God has, has made the world in such a way that people, man, and even animals in, in certain ways, we are free to make choices and we are free to do things within the sphere of our power and according to our nature. And so if I want to mute my microphone, I can mute my microphone. If I want to walk to the other room, I can walk to the other room because that is within the, the, the sphere of my power as a, as a human being. Uh, and it is according to my nature to make those kinds of, of decisions. And so that would be a free cause. It's not necessary. I don't have to mute my microphone. I don't have to go into the other room, whereas gravity always has to work. It's necessary. So free things are, are causes that could happen or could not happen. It's free. Uh, it's not. There's no compulsion that's forcing it, that's causing it to happen. If I want to mute my microphone, I do it. Nothing, nothing is forcing me to do that. It's free. We can also talk about contingent causes, which are really just another kind of free cause because they could happen or not happen, so they're free. But contingent means they're things that happen without anyone intending them to happen. When I talked about walking or muting my microphone, it would happen or not happen because I intend it. I, I make those choices. But there are contingent causes. There are things that just happen without anyone intending it. It's, an, it's a, what we call chance uh, in this world, uh, events that no agent was trying to cause or accidents. We talk about accidents. No one meant for this to happen, but it happened. And many things contribute to, to such events. Now, what I just described is necessary causes like gravity, free causes like my choices, and contingent causes like accidents or other types of things. All of those are secondary causes. They're all creaturely causes, and they all concur or run together with God, the first cause, who is working through them all and with them all to accomplish his purposes. So the God who has decreed all things is working in and through all things to accomplish his purposes uh, in his creatures and in his creation. So we, we are free in the sense that we God has given us power and agency to act within the sphere of our creatureliness, uh, and he has, and according to our nature. Uh, so one last thing on this question is that I cannot, I can choose to walk to the next room because that is within the, the limitations of the power that God has given to me as a human being. But if I walk outside and I say, up, up, and away, <laughs> I don't fly. <laughs> I don't just ascend up into the air because God has not granted us that power. That would be a miracle. That would be uh, the alteration of, of the ordinary order that God has established in this world of, of necessary causes. And so freedom is not an absolute freedom. It's not independent of God. It's not independent of my constitution. It's not independent of my nature or my disposition. 
and yet it is a real freedom that God has given to me to, to make choices and to act within who and what I am. And so perhaps now, uh, following on the decree, it would be helpful for our listeners if we talked about how sin fits in. So what is the relationship between the decree, sin, and suffering? Yes, we said a moment ago that God decrees all things, and so sin is included in God's decree. But we need to be very careful about the way in which we develop this, and I always tremble a little when I do so. Uh, Sin is a part of God's decree by way of permission. It is something that God permits to happen. And when we say that God permits sin to happen, what we mean is that God withholds the grace that would restrain a creature from sin. God does not stop them from sinning. That's what we, what we mean by permission. It's not that God grants them uh, permission. He doesn't say, okay, it's all right. You can do it. I permit it. What we mean is God does not stop it. God does not provide grace that would restrain a creature from sin. So God allows the creature to go the creature's way. He lets them do what they want to do. But he always permits that sin with a purpose, a greater and higher purpose of working it towards a greater good and his own holy and wise purposes. So God is not the author of sin. The creature chooses to do what the creature wants to do, and God does not stop the creature. He lets the creature go in its course. God is not the author of sin, nor does God do sin. That would be impossible because sin is a defect, and God is a perfect cause. He can only cause effects. He cannot cause defects. He's an efficient cause, not a deficient cause. So God is not the author of sin. God does not do sin, which is a little bit strange way of expression. Rather, God, a sin, excuse me, is something God permits by not giving grace that might restrain a creature from going a certain way. And he does this for his own wise and holy ends. And to To understand this a little better, there's a really great illustration that John Norton gave, which I I use in my book, just following him, which is of um, a miller. And water, a, a river, for example, or a stream, will run according to the course of the stream and according to the way in which water and as a physical thing runs. Water will do what water will do in a specific channel uh, of in which it runs. And so if you study the water itself, you will say, okay, this is H2O. You, you can understand the chemical nature of it. You can understand how, what it is like in, in the sciences. You can know a lot about water, but it will always just be a knowledge of water. Now, a miller can put a, a water wheel into that river or into that stream And now the water is powering a wheel and the wheel is connected to gears and the gears can power many things. They they can um, activate a saw and you can make a sawmill with the power of the water in the river or or they can grind uh, grain and and such things. The the miller can, can make many different things in his mill with the power of the water uh, in the river. And so God his relation to sin is like that. God allows sin to run in its course as water runs in a channel, but then he is able to use it to create good things or to to arrive at good things that the water in itself never could create. Water could never saw logs. 
that are useful for building and useful for, for other things. Water could never grind flour and make bread with it. Water's just water and water makes water and water gets things wet. That's all it does. And so similarly, if we look at sin and suffering, we'd say these are evils. They, they are wicked. They are painful. They are difficult. And, and we acknowledge them as true evils. We acknowledge them as uh, things which we must endure and which we must avoid at, at all costs, etc. We do not in any way deny sin. We, we affirm it as sin. It runs in its course. But God, as he permits it, is able to work it uh, and bring about greater and good ends. And, and of course, the classic examples are uh, Joseph, where his brothers commit great evil against him. And he suffers many additional evils until he arrives to be the second in command for the nation of Egypt. And Joseph says, what you meant for evil, speaking to his brothers, what, what they purposed in an evil way, God meant and used for good, which was to save alive many, many peoples, Egyptians and the nations around, or the, or the tribes and nomads around the area who came to get grain from Egypt. So many lives were saved because God permitted Joseph's brothers and the, the traders who passed by and, and stole Joseph, God permitted all of this wickedness to bring about a greater good. He, he created something that the wickedness itself could never create. And of course, the supreme example of all of this is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, where you see an unjust trial, uh, un false accusations against the one truly innocent man in the world. And then the execution, a criminal, an execution meant for the worst criminals given to the greatest and most righteous and holy man to ever live on this earth. It's great injustice. It's great wickedness and great evil against the man, our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet, in all this, Peter tells the Jews in Acts chapter 2 that you crucified the Lord of glory, but God had had foreordained this. He, he had predestined this and that he was going to work through it the salvation of all his people from all nations in all ages. And so the, the crucifixion shows great wickedness of man bringing about the death of Jesus Christ. And not just the wickedness of man, but the wickedness of Satan. He possessed uh, Judas and, and moved him to betray Jesus. And of course, no doubt was involved, he and his demons, in, in much of the, the wickedness that surrounded the trial, etc. So great wickedness from both men and fallen angels is involved in crucifying Jesus, and God accomplishes a, a wondrous and amazing good out of it. So when we talk about sin, we acknowledge that God permits it. We acknowledge that he does this in the sense of, of withholding restraining grace. He lets sinners run in their course. He lets them go as they are, but he does this with a purpose of accomplishing greater goods according to his purposes and his holy wisdom. And if we look at the sin itself, we'll never arrive at those greater goods. But when we see it in the hand of God or when we see it in the wisdom of God, we find that he is able to accomplish all his holy will. And indeed, he, he will accomplish all his holy will sin included in, in the decree and in the unfolding of it. You speak in, in this section on the divine decree on the subject of election, um, and, and that's election unto salvation. Um, you also talk about 
preterition. I, I hope I pronounced that right. You can correct me in your explanation. Um, what are those two things and how are they related to assurance of salvation? Election is the choosing of some men and angels to attain the eternal glory won by Jesus Christ. Uh, for men, this means that Christ's death atones for their sins and, and justifies them. For angels, this means that Christ's death confirms them in their innocence. They're, they're not sinful. They don't need to be redeemed, but they're, they're confirmed in, in a, therefore in a greater glory because they cannot fall. And so election is some men and angels will arrive at, will participate in, will receive the eternal glory that Jesus Christ has won. They're chosen. They're elected. Uh, by by God to receive this grace. Preterition, and you pronounced it perfectly fine as far as I know, as far as I know it to be pronounced, uh, preterition means to pass by or to go beyond. And so what that means is, while God has chosen a certain group of men and angels to receive this grace, there are others to whom he has not willed to give this grace. And so he he passes them by. Uh, he He does not give them the same grace that he gives to the rest of mankind. He leaves them in their sins. He simply passes over them, and he condemns them, therefore, in their sinfulness. They are sinners. He passes by them. He condemns them for the sinners that they are. And so that would be election and preterition. And election relates to salvation because if if God chooses a, a people to receive his saving grace, can we identify or can we can we see can we find the people who have received his saving grace? Can, can I know that I am one of those who has received his saving grace? Or am I prying into something that I ought not to because it's hidden and revealed for me? Uh, I think that it was Spurgeon. I, I heard recently someone mentioning again uh, something that I had forgot where Spurgeon said, uh, if, if God uh, had put a mark on everyone's back, a mark of election, we wouldn't go around preaching the gospel. We'd go around lifting everyone's shirts up. <laughs> and so we ought, to, we ought to preach the gospel. So you might say, well, then we don't know who the elect are. But no, Spurgeon is saying we preach the gospel and we know who are elect by those who respond in faith. And so you can say, I am a believer. I trust in Jesus Christ. And God has promised that all those who call upon his name, all those who come to him will not be cast out and will not be put to shame. And so therefore, I I find in Christ objective assurance. I find in him and his perfect and completed work, perfect assurance, objective assurance. And then in addition to that, I can look at myself or others' testimony about myself and say, do I show the gifts and graces of a child that's been born again, of a child that has been given saving faith, of a child that is growing in the fruit of the Spirit, a child that is fighting war against sin? Do I see justification and sanctification essentially in myself? And those would be secondary and subjective evidences of my election. No one will receive these things except those to whom God has chosen to give them. No one will come to Jesus Christ except those who, who the Father has chosen and drawn to the Son. No one will get to the Father except those who the Son brings to him. Jesus' sheep know his name and they know his or they know his voice. And they, they know him. They don't recognize fake shepherds. And so the scriptures tell us we can know, we can make our calling and election sure, but we can be diligent in these things and thereby attain an objective assurance by looking at Christ himself 
and a subjective assurance by looking at ourselves in light of who Christ has made us to be. And all of that conclusion is, therefore, I am elect, because I would not be like this apart from God's grace and mercy to me in Jesus Christ. I would not be going in this way. I would not be believing these things. I would not be obeying in this way or fighting this war of sin or repenting of my sin were it not for God's sovereign and powerful grace changing me, which he only does uh, in this way to his elect and dear children. And so election and assurance are not divided. They, they indeed go together. But we have to be careful in, in relating them, you know, because there are, are abuses of such things uh, that when we see hyper-Calvinism and, and other types of, of extremes, we need to make sure that we avoid them. But we don't need to talk about the extremes necessarily. We need, just, we need to be sure that we look to Christ, find in him objective assurance, and then we look at ourselves and we say, am I bearing the fruit of the Spirit? And when we're not, we don't despair. We acknowledge our sins. We repent of them and we return to God because in his covenant, he has provided everlasting and all-sufficient forgiveness for his children, which will never run out. Uh, it will always be there for us uh, in Christ Jesus, which is to the praise and glory of God. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been talking with uh, Samuel Renahan on his book, Deity and Decree. Uh, our conversation has been divided according to the divisions of his book, God's Unity, God's Trinity, in God's decree, he has given you um, a at least appetizing introduction to go read this book for yourself. So we hope and pray that you would go and check out this book. We'll link to it um, in our show notes. So go buy the book. And Dr. Renahan, thank you so much for joining us to um, have this conversation on deity and decree. Thank you, gentlemen. I enjoyed it very much. And to our listeners, we want to wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.